Well, we are wrapping up Romans chapter 8. And so if you've been with us for the last several months, you know that we have been studying Romans chapter 8. And we've gone a little bit slower through Romans 8 than the rest of the book, but it is a beautiful and glorious uh, chapter. And so we are going to read Romans 8, 28 through 39. We're going to focus on the very end, but I want to kind of get a running head start as we read God's word this morning. So Romans 8, 28 through 39. Romans 8, 28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The census reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. One of the perennial topics that Christians struggle with is the topic or the concept of assurance, assurance of our salvation, knowing and being convinced of the fact that God is for us, that God has indeed died for us, and that we indeed belong to him. And our struggles with assurance often begin when we discover God's profound holiness, his, his perfect splendor. Maybe you finally grasp the holiness of God when you read Isaiah chapter 6 for the first time and you see that as Isaiah has this vision of the throne room of heaven and glory cloud and light and splendor and majesty fill the temple and smoke is overwhelming Isaiah and the angels are behind and around the throne of God and Isaiah falls down dead and we as if he were dead. And we understand that this is the holiness of God. It is a fearful, wonderful, marvelous thing. And, and, and maybe as you understand the holiness of God, just like Isaiah, you realize that you have no business standing with confidence before God. And then as you grow to see God's high calling for your life, and you read Jesus telling the crowds on the Sermon on the Mount, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And you hear Jesus say that and you swallow hard. 
You say, how in the world can I come to God? I have to be perfect. How in the world can I have assurance that I'm saved if that's the standard? And then blunt words are read in 1 John chapter 2, verse 4, which says, whoever says, I know God, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. And we read things like this, we, we hear things like this, and we say, if God's standard is perfection and keeping all of his commandments, how can anyone have assurance? Especially me. I mean, you know your heart. I know my heart. We know the lust, the laziness, the anger. We know how intensely we pursue whatever the next thing is that we think will bring us some sort of happiness and satisfaction. And so it is common for Christians to have serious struggles, wrestling can, to consider, am I really a Christian? Am I truly saved? Perhaps wrestling with assurance is even a sign of growing in the Christian life. For nominal Christians, Christians who are Christians in name only, professing Christians, pretend Christians if you were, they don't struggle with the holiness of God. Perhaps they don't even understand the holiness of God. For many in our culture, like a Jesus who isn't concerned about sin or things that they've done that have been wrong, they like a Jesus who isn't concerned about anything in their life other than to help them when they're in need. They like a grandfather God who looks past youthful indiscretions with a slight frown or maybe even a wink that says, I've been there. There's no struggle with assurance if that's what you think of God. But if you truly know God, and if you're reading God's word, and the Bible says that as we get to know the holiness and the perfections and the grandeur and the splendor of God, what is it that is the right response of every Christian? We are to fear God. In fact, the beginning of wisdom is the what? Fear of God. The fear of God motivates us to live for his glory. It motivates us to make sure that we're worshiping him with our whole lives, directs our praises to him instead of ourselves. And a good fear of God doesn't keep us stuck wondering if we're truly saved with absolutely no assurance. No, you see, Romans 8 is written for those who struggle with assurance. For those who wonder, can I have assurance that I am truly God's? Romans 8 is written so that you can be certain that God is for you and there is no one who can be against you. It's written so that you can find hope in a big God whose purposes and plans are never thwarted, including his plans and purposes about you and your salvation whose eternal power is always at play to accomplish everything according to his good and perfect plan. And so that we can know, Romans 8, 28, right? That all things work, for those, that all things for those who love God work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. 
And then, verses 29 and 30, give us this chain of certain events planned before the foundation of the world that's all about how God chose us, that God loved us before we were even anything. He calls us, he justifies us, he saves us, and he keeps you saved to the end. Romans 8 is for struggling Christians of all types, including those of us who struggle with assurance. Ultimately, because God's saving love for us is eternal. It is inescapable, and it is based on his choosing, not ours. John 10, 28 and 29 tells us very clearly, Jesus says, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. See, eternal life is just that. Eternal. Because God planned and purposed to place his eternal saving love on you. And so as we close Romans chapter 8, Paul majors on assurance. He reminds us again that if we belong to Christ... We can trust in his eternal, inescapable, electing love to keep us to the end. And that nothing can separate us from that love. Well, as we study this passage, we're going to have three blessings of knowing Christ's eternal love. This is our simple outline. Three reasons we can be sure that nothing can separate us from Christ's eternal and electing love. So three reasons we can be sure that if God is for us, nothing separates us from his love. Well, our first blessing here, we are not separated by suffering in life. Number one, we are not separated by suffering in life. Now, most of us are completely given over to being comfortable all the time, no matter what. We assume it is our right to get everything we want as soon as we want it. For example, if I'm a little cold when I come into my office in the morning, I have a heater. And since we're in the process of changing over the heat and the cooling in here, and we only have one at a time in this old church building, I turn on that heater so my shins can be a little bit more toasty, right? I mean, you guys have done the same thing, right? How many of you in spring use your heater in the morning and your AC in the afternoon or the evening? I mean, think how lavish and opulent that is, right? It's 67 degrees here. Oh, boy, I better get the heat on. And it's 74 degrees. I better get that AC on. I can't sleep, right? Sometimes we think being too cold or too hot is, is suffering. Of course it is not. Sometimes... We let our desire to be comfortable distract us from worship and get in the way of our pursuit of God. But sometimes our suffering is a little bit more acute. As we face the searing pain of death, the tragedy of financial ruin, the consuming anguish of physical pain, the incessant depression that seems to cripple our, our minds, the sting of our own guilt as we wrestle through sin. Suffering is very real because the effects of sin are real. 
And in the midst of that suffering, we might fear that our faith won't survive. We might lose sight of Christ. And so Paul gives us the end of Romans 8 to run to in these moments. He says, may it never be. Look at verse 35. Romans 8, 35, he says, who or what shall separate us from the love of Christ? To make sure that we remember why he mentions the love of Christ at the beginning of verse 35, we need to understand that he's just talked about the love of Christ in verse 34. You see, he says very clearly, who is to condemn in verse 34? That means who is to um, bring us condemnation based on our sin? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? And so we see that God the Son took on human flesh. He truly suffered and experienced everything that we do. He was tempted yet without sin. He was crucified. He died and was buried. And then he rose again. He was that perfect sacrifice and showed that he conquered sin and death by rising from the grave. And so we understand that the love of Christ is most perfectly depicted at the cross. We remember that he rose from the grave too to secure our salvation, that his love doesn't just extend to covering our sin, doesn't just extend to wiping us clean, but he extends to giving us this hope of full forgiveness and, and reconciliation with God. He bore the wrath that was re- reserved for me so that we can know his grace, that we can know God's gift. Forgiveness. And we are declared to be holy and right in God's eyes all because of Christ's love for us. Because He is that perfect substitute. He took our sin and He declares us to be righteous. Not only that, but Christ continues to show His love for us. As 34 continues, He says, Jesus Christ is also the one who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And so we have this constant access to the Father. We have full, constant assurance that we are accepted before God. Not because we are good enough, but because Christ is good enough. And he sits there, bringing us directly to God. You see, our lives have been transformed from being slaves to sin, slaves to live for our flesh, our own comfort even. And now we are free to worship God, to live how we are designed to live, to give glory to God. See, it's the love of Christ that has saved us and constantly beckons us to live for his glory, to come to God with all of our sin and all of our suffering. And if you do not know that good news that comes through Christ alone, I encourage you, this is the day where you have a chance to know this. Turn and trust in him alone. But if you have turned and trusted in Christ alone and you understand the love of Christ and you understand the the lavish riches that are ours because Christ has died for us and, and rose again to prove that we have constant access to God now, you might think maybe, just just maybe, I can sin bad enough. I can do enough evil to, to fall away from God's love. 
Maybe, just maybe, there can be significant pressures placed upon me that would cause me to crack. And so Paul takes us through seven life events that might cause you to turn from God and be outside of Christ's love. And he asks, can any of these things separate us? The answer, of course, is no. But he wants us to think about this because, honestly, we need to think about this. So what is the first idea of something that could separate us? He asks, who or what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall, shall tribulation? This is the same word that is used for the great tribulation in Revelation. It has a literal connotation of intense pressure. Uh, a, a pressure that could come from, in a literal way, birth pangs or emotional pressure that comes from suffering or difficulties in your life. So any sort of tribulation, sometimes when tribulation comes, we feel the pressure and we wonder, is God really truly for us? We continues, shall tribulation separate us from the love of Christ? Or, or maybe distress, that's the second word, right? Shall distress take us from the love of Christ? This word distress is literally a, a narrow place. Picture walls that are moving in on you. I mean, how terrifying is that? Speaking of narrow places, remember the, the Thai boys who were rescued from the cave? Do you remember reading some of the articles and seeing some of the infographics on what the rescuers went through? I remember seeing some of those graphics, and, and, and you know they, they would have to go through several what they called T-turns, which is like this to this, and they're basically having to kind of finagle their bodies through uh, you know a foot or two feet maximum way to get through that. I couldn't do that. I'm sure I would die. I would freak out and, and die. And yet this is that concept that, that narrows, right? That pressure, that distress that comes and, and, and puts so much pressure on us that, that, we, that we feel like we can't even see the love of God. Well, there's more here. Uh, the tribulation, shall tribulation or, or distress or what's the next word? Persecution. This specifically speaks of persecution for what you believe. Targeted persecution because you are a Christian. You know, honestly, we have enjoyed very little persecution in our nation for a very long time. And yet we need to recognize this is incredibly rare in church history. And even in our country, it seems like persecution will probably only increase here. And you can't escape it by running to Texas or Florida, okay? Perhaps first, we might face greater financial pressures if the government takes away privileged tax status for churches. Perhaps you already experience frequent ridicule by scoffers who think your beliefs are absurd or dangerous. But in many places in the world today, this is the norm. This is the ongoing consequence of being a Christian. 20 years ago now, a friend of mine was kicked out of her home as a 15-year-old because she became a Christian in Belarus. There was a 15-year-old girl due out on the street. She went into the home of a, of a church member, but her family literally disowned her. I know of brothers and sisters who have been put to death in Afghanistan. So the question comes in your life, will the pressures of persecution get so bad that you'll just walk from, walk away from the love of Christ? 
Well, he has another couple of options here. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution. And then he says, or famine or nakedness. And these two really do go together. They, they are kind of the, the quintessential uh, necessities that we all need to survive. As bad as persecution is, perhaps worse is living in a failed state. You see, today famine is rarely going on because of a lack of rain, given that we can move food from other parts of the world pretty easily. Famine or nakedness, these things come today when governments fail. A perfect example of this is the nation of Haiti in the Caribbean, and I prayed for them this morning. It's on the same island as the Dominican Republic, that the island of Hispaniola, but the people suffer exponentially worse in Haiti from many things, including food insecurities. They don't even know how much they're going to eat, and you have kids who have, whose growth is completely stunted because they've only been given you know, the, a bare minimum to survive every single day for their whole lives. They have insufficient clothing. They have one pair of clothes, the clothes on their back. It's so bad. One of the most heavily guarded borders in the world is between Haiti and the Dominican Republic. And why? Because vast numbers of Haitians would rather go work in the DR, for, in the sugar fields, for basically nothing than stay in Haiti. Why? Because the government's failed. And hunger and nakedness, these things are real. What if you lived in that situation? Would your faith remain secure? Or do you think that you'd get angry with God for not having enough food, not having enough clothes for your kids? Well, he continues, doesn't he? Shall famine or nakedness or danger or sword separate us from the love of Christ? This word danger is perhaps the most general term, danger from people who hate you or danger from the raging sea out on a boat. And sword, sword can refer both to the threat of the sword or the threat of physical harm and actual being killed. It can refer to any type of physical threat from, from those sanctioned by the state to those threats of robbers and thieves. Like my youth pastor in high school who shot a man who entered his house who was threatening his family. Paul is trying to make you think of anything or anyone who might be able to separate you from the love of Christ. He wants you to consider, is there some terrible event there would be just too much that you just couldn't you just couldn't trust Jesus after that event happened in your life is some event or person going to be the final straw for your faith could something happen to separate you from Christ's love well the unimaginable happened to Lisa Beamer she lost her husband while she was pregnant with her third child her husband was Todd Beamer. You might recognize that name. He was the man who was on hijacked flight 93, who along with a few other passengers fought back on September 11th, 2001. Todd was the one who said, let's roll as he crashed the cockpit doors and took back controls from the terrorists just before the plane crashed in Pennsylvania. But listen to how Lisa, a committed Christian, processed her intense grief, her tribulation, her distress, her persecution, her danger, and her sword. 
I quote her, she says, God knew the terrible choices the terrorists would make and that Todd Beamer would die as a result. He knew my children would be left without a father and me without a husband. Yet in his sovereignty and in his perspective on the big picture, he knew it was better to allow the events to unfold as they did rather than redirect Todd's plans to avoid death. I can't see all the reasons he might have allowed this when I know he could have stopped it. I don't like how his plan looks from my perspective right now, but knowing that he loves me and can see the world from start to finish helps me say it's going to be okay. If we believe wholeheartedly each moment that our destiny rests in the hands of Jesus Christ, the one who ultimately loves and and his ultimate power, what do we have to be concerned about? This should be the heart cry of every believer. I have no choice but to cling to an everlasting love of my Lord and Savior. It doesn't matter if famine and nakedness and danger and sword and persecution and distress and tribulation. If all these things assault my life, I have nothing but to cling to Christ. And you see, the issue when suffering looms isn't that these things, these sufferings, could somehow take us out of God's hand as if they are some intrinsic power in and of themselves to affect God's love. No, the thing that we likely fear is that in response to suffering, we might somehow take ourselves out of God's love. But Paul's whole point is that you are secure Because it's not your love that saves you or that keeps you. It is Christ's love for you. It is Christ's power to sustain you through any trial. What an incredible comfort and and blessing from the Lord. And we see a second blessing. Number two, we are not conquered by death. We are not conquered by death. And as I was studying this week, I came across a letter written in 1550 from a pro-Roman Catholic magistrate about his counter-reformation activities. He wrote to an official in the Roman Catholic Church celebrating that he was able to wipe out all the Reformation church leaders in his town in one day. He went on to describe how he herded all 88 of these men into a barn and then came in with two items, a blindfold and a knife. And they led the first man out blindfolded and slit his throat. And then they proceeded to do it again and again and again, 88 times. And after all were killed, they quartered every single one of them as if they were animals and they hung their limbs out for everyone to see all around town. As a gruesome warning for those who would dare seek salvation apart from Rome. Of course, more atrocities would follow in the Middle Ages, in the time of the Reformation. Because being a Christian at certain points in history was perhaps more dangerous than being a soldier in the midst of a war. 
And as soon as Paul mentions the sword, as he does at the end of verse 35, it catapults another thought. What about death? Can, Can suffering that leads to death separate us from the love of Christ? And to make his point, he quotes Psalm 44, verse 22, in verse 36. Look at verse 36. He says, well, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. You see, in the days of the early church, Nero burned Christians as torches in his garden parties. Multiple emperors used Christians as fodder for lions and other beasts in the arena. Today, Boko Haram in northern Nigeria often threatens and kills Christians simply for being Christian. Buddhist monks in Sri Lanka confiscate church properties with the help of the local government. Paul is not glib over the death of Christians, for he purposely quotes Psalm 44, a psalm of lament. And just listen to some of the words in Psalm 44. Psalm 44, verse 8 says, In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. But you have rejected us and disgraced us. Verse 13 says, You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. And then verse 20 says, If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God and worshipped another God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet, that has not happened. For your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. You you listen to Psalm 44 and you realize there's great confusion on the lips of the sons of Korah over how death could accomplish anything good. Why does death come uh, come to followers of God, men and women who are faithfully following God? But there's also in Psalm 44 and in our passage a settled trust that God still will accomplish everything he desires even if Christians die. So does death mean then in any way that Christians can be conquered by an untimely or a terrible death? Does death separate us from Christ's love? Certainly the Roman Catholic Church teaches that death leads us into purgatory apart from Christ's intimate love and communion. But Paul reminds us in Philippians 1.23 that to die is best. For the Christian, to die is to what? Be with Christ. It is our gain. And so, of course, death cannot separate us from the love of Christ. In fact, it's what ushers us into a more intimate communion with Christ. So can death separate us? Even a a hard verse 36 type death, a death that says that we are being killed all the day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, we're we're quartered and, and hung up in towns. Even a death like that, does that separate us? Does that cause us to fall away? Of course not. Verse 37, he says, no, 
And this is a very mild translation. It could be expanded, absolutely not. In fact, the complete opposite is true. He uses the adversative, uh, a word that kind of could be translated but here. It is absolutely no way can anything separate us from the love of Christ. And he says, in all of these things, whether it's death, whether it's danger, or sword, or famine, or nakedness, or persecution, or distress, or tribulation, no, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Through Christ who loved us. We are not conquered by death. We are here said to be more than conquerors. Death brings us to glory and a more intimate love with Christ. And so we are more than conquerors, meaning we don't just win against death. We win by a mile. It'd be like me racing Usain Bolt. He'd destroy me, right? We understand that he's winning by a mile. And this is this, we're more than conquerors. It's an athletic term. We don't just eke out a victory. We crush our enemy. Death indeed has lost its sting. And in Christ, death for the Christian matter, what type of death? We are more than conquerors. And with death, we aren't taken further from Christ's love. We are catapulted into the very presence of Christ's love. Why? Because God is for us, before time and in time. Because God is for us as we suffer, after we suffer. Because God is for us as we die and after we die. Nothing gets in the way of Christ's eternal, inescapable, electing love. Look back at verse 30. Romans 8, verse 30. And those... These are Christians here. Those whom he predestined or chose ahead of time, he also called. And those whom he called effectually, he also justified. He also declares us righteous. He also brings us into his presence. And those whom he justified or saves, he also then glorified and brings us into glory. And so he says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? But can death separate us? Can terrible danger or pestilence or sword or famine, can these things separate us? Verse 37, no, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And how easy is it for us to give in to fear, to be so worried about our kids' future that we can't enjoy present how easy is it us is it for us to fear men how easy is it for us to be far more concerned with what people think of us than what god thinks of us the end of romans 8 is meant to help erase ungodly fears to fight wicked worries and to conquer useless anxieties we simply remember, I'm with God. And his love towards me started before the foundation of the world. 
and the omnipotent God of the universe promises to work in my life to save me and to bring me to glory. So nothing can separate us from the love of Christ because God is for us. Death is our great graduation. So we are not separated by suffering in life and we are not conquered by death. And now a third and final blessing. We are not overcome by demons or anything else. You see, angels are perhaps the most terrifying creatures to confront men. John, the apostle, in Revelation 1, falls down like a dead man when an angel comes to him. Ezekiel falls on his face too as he's given this vision of angels in Ezekiel 1. Mary is obviously afraid. What does the angel say to her in in his very first words? Do not be afraid. Angelic beings are far more powerful than men. They stand in the holy presence of God, reflecting his majestic splendor. And as we try very much to believe in the real presence of demons and their active work in this life, sometimes we begin to question what Paul anticipates. wonder if demons could affect our salvation. I wonder if demons might be able to Keep us from the love of Christ. And so Paul wants to show the limitations of demons. If no suffering in life can separate us and death cannot separate us, what about the most powerful beings created? We might wonder perhaps angels or fallen angels can ruin our lives. Before he mentions angels, middle of verse 38 he actually builds on the previous three verses though look at verse 38 he says for i am sure that neither death nor life can separate us from the love of christ it's obvious why he chooses these two he's already said suffering in this life cannot separate us from the love of Christ, right? Verse 35, that was the whole point of verse 35. Whether it's trials or persecution or anything like that, suffering in this life cannot separate us. He also says suffering through death cannot separate us. In fact, it graduates us. Verses 36 and 37 is all about that. We are more than conquerors when we die. So it should be obvious, based on God's eternal power, his sovereignty over all things at all times, nothing in death or life can separate us from Christ's electing love. And so Paul says, verse 38 is very clear, I am sure that neither death nor life can separate us. I am certain, I am persuaded, I am completely and utterly convinced that nothing can separate us from God. You know, sometimes I talk with people who try to convince me that some core tenet of Christianity just isn't true. Like the Jehovah's Witness who come to my door and try to convince me that Jesus is an angel or that he's not truly God. Right? I'm, I'm sorry, but they're just not going to convince me. This is utterly, I'm utterly convinced. Perhaps something uh, I've been had a conversation with people where they try and convince me The scriptures teaches uh, something different than what I believe scripture teaches. Like, you know, that all babies need to be baptized. I'm sorry, but I'm utterly convinced that baptism is for Christians. 
You can try and convince me that babies need to be baptized. I just am not buying it. I'm, I'm utterly convinced. At some point in the conversation, I feel like I have to say, I'm not going to change. I am utterly convinced on this issue. I'm sure. And that's what Paul is saying. With this doctrine of, of perseverance, this idea that we will persevere to the end, that because God has chosen us, he will make sure that we are continuing in the faith till the end. He is utterly convinced. He is certainly persuaded that nothing can separate him from the love of Christ, neither life nor death, neither nothing in life and certainly not death. And then he goes on to include demons. Verse 38 continues. It says, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers can separate us from the love of Christ. Now, how do we know that angels or rulers are both speaking of demons? Let's think about this for a little bit. Colossians 1.16 speaks of angels as thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. Elsewhere in the Bible, angels are called cherubim, seraphim, powers, sons of God, glorious ones, and even an archangel. There's lots of words that God uses to describe angels. And I think we can assume that there's probably some hierarchies of angels as well. There's going to be different classifications, different ranks. But other than that, the Bible tells us very little about how those ranks operate and what thrones and dominions and what these things mean. But what we can know is that since we are talking about angels that would want to separate us from the love of Christ, Paul here refers to who? Fallen angels, otherwise known as demons. Now, demons are not some little red creatures with horns on their head. You don't see anywhere in Scripture where demons are described in those typical ways that we've seen them depicted. In fact, Satan is described as an angel of what? Light. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. Perhaps the most splendid of cherubs who was able to convince a third of the angels of heaven to join his ranks, including apparently angels of different ranks. And so when, when Paul says, I'm convinced that neither angels nor rulers are able to separate us from the love of Christ, he also wants to include a third category of angels at the end of verse 38. He says, nor powers are able to separate us from the love of Christ. Again, because that word, powers, is frequently used to describe angelic powers or demonic powers. And so all types of fallen angels and their rulers and their different powers are engaged in spiritual warfare to to accomplish what they desire, most of all, which is to shipwreck a Christian's faith. And how do they work? Are they in some territory like the pagan gods believed uh, about, you know, that, that, that Baal oversaw this area and Asherah oversaw that area? No. Angelic hosts are not overseeing little territorial demons, right? These are, they're not even in a house, okay? There's little evidence for this. I think it's said... Angels and demons, they're most likely to be working in places like government. In fact, the terms rulers and powers, those are also synonyms for governmental authorities, political authorities, indicating, as many believe, demons work in some way to infiltrate governments. Now, now, now don't, 
Don't sit there and look at a party that you don't like and say, oh, every one of them is demons. It's just not true, okay? Let, let's, let's be clear there. But I do think that demons are working to infiltrate governments, okay? Let's, let's say what we know and not kind of take it a little bit too far, okay? Well, demons also very frequently work in and through false religions of the world, don't they? All sorts of false religions are uh, basically the doctrines of demons. That's a word that the scriptures use. Anything that is not true, there's a different religion, is a doctrine of demons. This is Buddhism, Hinduism, um, you know, Sikhism, uh, Muslim. I mean, all of these other religions, including Judaism today, they are doctrines of demons. But most demonic work isn't like the jump scare worthy things, right? It's not the scary mask and, and you know, it gets us to be afraid. This is not what demons do, okay? I want you to see this. Demons come as angels of light and they encourage us to think explicitly what God tells us never to think. Things like, you know what? I am always right in everything I do. I deserve to be happy in any way that I choose, in any way that I think is good for me. That's the way I need to be happy. All roads will lead to heaven. It doesn't matter what someone believes, as long as they're good and genuine and nice people. There's peace in Christ throughout all, all places. These are all doctrines of demons. These are all thoughts of demons. And yet as powerful and pervasive and persuasive as demons are, can angels thwart God's plans or destroy God's people? Absolutely not. Remember, where does Satan have to go to ask permission to, to test Job? The throne room of heaven. So even powerful ruling demons cannot do whatever they wish in your life. They can never dominate your life. God allows only what we can handle, and he promises that nothing will be able to take us out of his hand. And if you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, there's certainly no demon who can ever dwell in us. We may be tempted to think the demonic thoughts of the world or other religions, but God will never let us be dominated or ruled over by a demon. And he also reminds us that with every temptation, he provides a way of what? Escape. So as powerful as the highest demons might be, is not God exponentially more powerful? And has not God promised to keep us to the end? I'm mean, Verse 30 again, I, I keep on going to this because this is the, the kind of backbone of the rest of this passage. Verse 30 says, if God has predestined us, he also calls us. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also will glorify so we can be absolutely convinced, not even angels, the most powerful creatures in God's universe can separate us from the love of Christ. And neither can anything that is going on now or will come in to pass in the future. And so verse 38 continues, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor, nor things to come can separate us from the love of Christ. Right? That's pretty straightforward. As much as you fear what might come in your country, as much as you might fear what will happen when you run into difficulties, whatever is presently distressing you and the things that you fear most about your future, even real tragedies that might come, 
Those things cannot separate us from the love of Christ. Because if God is for you, who can be against you? Our final pair of ideas is found in verse 39. He says, for I'm sure that neither death nor life, and he goes on and then he says, verse 39, nor height nor depth could separate us from the love of Christ. And what is this height or depth language? Could it be stars? Since stars are often associated with demons, maybe, maybe this could be, or demons and angels are associated with stars. Perhaps it could be, for the ancients thought of the stars as descending into the horizon, to the depths, and rising up to the heights of the heaven. Perhaps the heights and depths could be more demonic beings who can't touch us. But I think more likely, this concept of height and depth means that nothing in heaven nor in hell can separate us from the love of Christ. I think he borrows more likely from Psalm 139 type language. Just listen as I read a bit of Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me by night, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is bright as the day. For darkness is as light with you. See, no matter where you, we are, in all the universe, we can never escape the presence of God and his power to work in us for his glory and our good is constant for those whom Christ loves. And just in case someone might think there's got to be something out there that can separate us from God, what does he conclude with? For I am sure that neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And in case there's some power, some authority that Paul forgot, he says, nor anything else in all creation, spiritual, physical, anything, can separate you from the love of God. You can't get much more comprehensive than that. And still, I actually read a commentator that said, there is actually one thing that Paul doesn't mention here that can separate you from Christ's love. It's yourself. Our own free will can choose to remove ourselves from his love. Baloney. That's not in this text. If that were true, this is not what this, uh, how can you see this here? It's not there. That destroys the whole argument of the text. Paul has walked us through God's powerful choice to love us before the foundation of the world. And so God guides, he works to accomplish everything he desires, including helping every adopted son and daughter persevere in our faith because of his eternal electing love. So as we close, I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. Well, a pastor tells the story of one of the worst funerals he'd ever done. It was the death of a young wife and mother from his congregation. And after the service, friends gathered around the young husband and his little girl, and they urged the father to go with them to their homes for a few days, but he refused. He took the little girl back to the lonely house where everything in it reminded him of his wife. 
The little girl, sensing something was wrong, did not, and yet not old enough to fully grasp what was wrong, and the loss of her mother, kept asking for mommy to feed her, brush her teeth, tuck her in like she always did. When the father had finally tucked the little one in bed and gone off to bed himself, thinking that the little girl was asleep, he cried aloud in his anguished soul and said, Oh God, it is dark down here. The child, who was not yet asleep, began to cry and said, Daddy, it is dark over here too. Take me to bed with you. So the father took the little one in bed with him and attempted to soothe her sobbing. Then she reached over in the darkness and felt for the face of her father. Daddy, she said, I can go to sleep if your face is towards me. Being assured that his face was toward her, she soon dropped off into a peaceful slumber. How much easier is it to bear the suffering of the day, our death that is still to come, and any act of spiritual warfare that we might endure when we know that the Father's face is towards us. The good, strong love of the Father in Christ Jesus remains toward all his children always. And so Paul reminds us of this fact in 2 Corinthians 4, what it means to have the glorious face of God's pleasure constantly looking after us. He says, verse 7, 2 Corinthians 4, 7, but we have this treasure. And what is this treasure? Look back at verse 6. The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We have this treasure, this glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ in jars of clay. What are the jars of clay? Those are our bodies. We have the glorious face of Jesus Christ in us, in these jars of clay. Why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body of the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus might also be manifested in our bodies. And then he concludes verse 16, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so let us never forget the eternal inescapable, inescapable, electing love of Christ. It's always for us. If we belong to Christ, nothing can separate us from who we are in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the glorious realities at the end of Romans chapter 8 to remember again today that nothing can be against us, that your Power is there to preserve us, to save us, to uh, sanctify us, to grow us, and to uh, persevere our faith and to ultimately glorify us. 
We thank you, Lord, that you are working in and through us. Lord, we thank you for the promise that, that suffering, difficulties, famine, these terrible things, even the most terrible thing we can imagine, a, a, a terrible death, nothing like that can separate us from your love. So, Lord, help us to speak these truths to our fears. Help us to speak these truths to our anxieties. Help us to speak these truths to our troubles, that we might be able to persevere with your strength, not our own. Thank you for giving us this great hope and promise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.